Thank you, Greg. That was a wonderful, very rich time of prayer. Really appreciate it very much. And I was thinking the exact same thing. It is a perfect lead into what the Lord's doing in my life and what he's, I hope he's doing in our church and, and hopefully what he'll be doing in this sermon today. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, looking forward to the rest of your prayer this month with us. Back in the 60s and 70s, do you realize, do you understand how, I mean, I'm sure you do, how much of everything I relate to is old, right? All right. Back in the 60s and 70s, there was a comedian named Flip Wilson. See, the old people laughed. <laughs> right? And he was, he was pretty popular at that time. He was considered, uh, Time Magazine named him TV's first black superstar in 1972. He had a, a TV comedy show, and just like Tyler Perry has his Medea character, like that, uh, Flip Wilson had Geraldine. The, uh, yeah, there we go. There we go. There's another old brother right there. That's good. You just keep on amening, all right? And his comedy routine, uh, in addition to having uh, Geraldine, he also had the Reverend Leroy, which I've taken great inspiration from. And, uh, <laughs> And, what, and, and he had a couple catchphrases that he said, and they kind of got into popular um, you know, vernacular. And one of them was, what you see is what you get, honey. Now then, that one right there, though, is, is what also came from some of you nerds. You'll understand this next thing. What? Right there. you understand that. That WYSIWYG? That's a nerd thing. How many nerds do I have in this room go, I know what that means. Thank you, I see a nerd. Thank you, I see a nerd. God still loves nerds, right? Okay. So WYSIWYG is, um, I'm just going to tell you what Wikipedia said about this. If it's wrong, take it up with Wikipedia, okay? WYSIWYG is, a t- uh, it is a, a, an interface for editing documents and presentations in such a way that you, what you're editing you get to see at the same time. Now then, the fact that WYSIWYG is relevant today and it's from the 60s just validates me. But his other catchphrase, he said, was this one. The devil made me do it. I'm not going to try and even talk about that one. I'm not going to try and do that justice at all. The best way to understand that the devil made me do it is to hear that for yourself. That, uh, Joe, oh, Jay, don't worry about the video. It's just really audio. It's, one of, it's so old they didn't have video You bought for this, another right? dress? This is ridiculous. That's the third dress this week. This is the reverend talking him. to his wife. The devil him. made me buy this dress. <laughs> Ted, I didn't want to buy no dress. The devil kept following me. I was going down the street going, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the devil kept following me, and he kept telling me how good I look. <laughs> Rev said, I'm not going for that. He said, every time you do something wrong, you blame it on the devil. So you blamed it on the devil when you ran the car to the side of the church. <laughs> it was the devil. You wasn't there. How do you know? He grabbed the steering wheel out of my hand. Rick said, well, why didn't you step on the brake? Said, because when he grabbed the steering wheel, I tried to kick him. I had to kick him and step on the brake at the same time. Said, and we had a big fight. And that's why I was in the back seat when y'all got the call. Rick said, well, how'd the devil get you to buy the dress? She said, I was going out of town. Sneaked up behind me, sneak. I heard him tip it to you know. I didn't want to look around because I knew it was the devil, you know. <laughs> that devil came up behind me, he said, 
I said, uh, say, Mama, look at the dress in the window. <laughs> I said, that's your size, too. I said, it's on sale, too. Got a lot of them flowers in it like you like, you know. So why don't you treat yourself to that dress? And I told him, you better cut that out, devil. <laughs> I already bought two dresses this week. I'm not going to buy no dress. I'm not even going to look at it. Devil said, well, why don't you try it on? So they're not going to charge, charge you nothing to try it on. I mean, that's free. You owe yourself a try on. I said, devil, you better leave me alone. And he shoved me in the door. The devil just shoved me in that door. He pushed me in the door. I said, devil, stop it, please. You gonna buy that dress? I said, I'm not buying no dress, devil. And he pulled a gun. <laughs> devil pulled a gun and he threatened me and made me sign your name to a check. <laughs> Rip said, oh, look, sit out from every time the devil makes you do something, it's something for your benefit. When's the devil gonna do me a favor? And his wife tells him, he did already. I asked the devil about that. He said, if it wasn't for him, you wouldn't even have a job. I can remember when listening to that on a record was really hip, you know? So you see, like, a very comedic, funny kind of approach of really almost, you could have taken that same sketch, those same words, that same approach, and says, that was Genesis 1. You know, that was Genesis 3, I mean, right there. Did you notice how Geraldine explained her transgression to her husband? Did you hear it? So the devil made me do it. She, you know, obviously she wasn't supposed to be buying a dress that week. And he followed me down the street. He sneaked up behind me. Say, Mama, you look, you'd look good in that dress, you know? Why don't you treat yourself to that dress? You owe yourself a try-on. And he pushed me in the door, he sa- she said. And he threatened me. And he made me try it on. And he made me sign your name to a check. You know, these days you say, he made me use your credit card, right? Or your Apple Pay, right? But you see how all along the way, she, she, he, Geraldine, Geraldine, all right? <laughs> Geraldine really accurately portrays temptation, doesn't, she? doesn't he? Doesn't she? Um, accurately portrays temptation where see something that you like and then it, it would be okay to just go in and look at it. It'd be okay to just try it on, and then finally after that, you're done. And it's just swipe the card and go home with it. And then go home and tell the husband, the devil made me do it, and hope he buys that, right? And, and that's really not too far at all from what I think you and I have experienced at some time or another. And may, I mean, I've never bought a dress for myself. Something else along that same line, right? Something else along that same line where it's something that we know we shouldn't do, But then, let me just pause right there and say, it's not only things that we shouldn't do. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. Things we do that are wrong. There are things that we don't do. And because we didn't do them, they are wrong. It's very easy to see how this little scenario aptly describes how we fall into sin as well. 
Sin is one of the most, I mean, it is the most common thing that all of us in this room will share. None of us are exempt. None of us have outgrown it. From the womb to the grave, sin is present with us. None of us have mastered it, contained it. None of us really understand it. None of us can really explain it. You hear Paul, we read that just a week or two ago in in chapter Romans uh, 7, where Paul tries to explain his own struggle with sin, and he says, I don't understand this. The thing that I don't want to do, I do it. And the things that I don't want to, and the things that I should do, I don't do them. And quite honestly, we have a hard time seeing sin in ourselves as well. But many, if not all of us, have also wallowed in our sin. We've jumped right in it like it was a swimming pool on a hot summer day. We've run toward it. We've chased it. We've bragged about it. These days it's especially great to brag about it. Just like Paul said in, in the book of Timothy that we would brag about it. We broadcast it. We publish it. We invite others into it and we relish our sin. The biggest problem with sin is that it feels good, it tastes good, and we like it. And many of us have tried to flee our sin, to run away from it. We've sought help with it. And no matter what we've done, it is still there. And it always will be. It is ever lurking. It is ever waiting. And just like the Lord said in Genesis, sin is crouching, waiting to devour devour you. And just like it did to Geraldine, it sneaks up behind us as we walk down the streets of our life. Let's define sin. Our children and many of our children workers or CF workers, I might need a little help with this, define sin as anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. All right, thank you. Did you get that? Everyone watch it with me because you're going to do it right now, okay? Anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. Anyone who is too cool for that, you're in sin, all right? Because there's some of y'all who think y'all too cool right down here in this front row that just sat there and went, oh, that's so cute. <laughs> so we're going to do it together, okay? The three of us right here, right? Yeah. And don't, ta- don't make me think you're taking notes because I know you didn't want to do this, all right? So there we go. All right, great. Anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. Very good. I'm proud of all three of you. And if I get a nasty letter, I'll know it's from y'all, all right? So... Anything we think, say, or do that does not please God. And that is really an easy, easy way to remember what sin is. That's the way our children's workers teach it to our kids, our children all the time. Uh, Lewis Berry Chafer says that, it, that sin is anything that does not conform to the character of God. Now, that, see, that's just a theological way of saying, you know, something that's much easier said, you know, the way we tell it to our children, Right? But let's think about it really quickly. What is the character of God? Well, tell me, what are some characteristics of God? Talk to me, church. He's pure. What else? Holy. What else? Just. Good. Loving. Anyone else? Give me one more, maybe. Gentle. Righteous. All right? So all those things, he is all those things. He's just. He's loving. He's good. He's gracious. He's holy. He's merciful. He's righteous. He's pure. And so when we are all of the antithesis of those things, when we are all not those things, we are in sin. So when we are unloving, 
when we are hateful, when we are unmerciful. And you can go down that list and you can see how easy it is that we have not conformed to the character of God. You can see how we have, we have thought, said, and done things that do not please God. And if you're trying to figure out, well, have I really? Well, then let's just go because he published a list, a top ten list. Before David Letterman ever did, he published a top ten list. And that top ten list right there kind of helps us understand whether we fit in the category of anybody that's ever sinned. He says, do not murder, do not lie, do not steal. And that doesn't mean walking in with a gun. That means like your taxes, some of that nice urban, some of that nice suburban kind of crime, right? Do not co- covet your wife's neighbor. We won't go there, will we? Not in public. Or their house or their property. To honor your parents. And that means even our 92-year-old parents. Do not bear false witness. Do not commit adultery. Remember the Sabbath. Do not misuse the Lord's name and have no other gods before me. It's easy to see that all of us have broken any number of those commandments. You might have heard that sin means to miss the mark. Well, that's a great definition. That's exactly how the Bible tries to portray it. And think of that definition in light of what we said. Sin is different than God. So he is the center of the target. And anything that misses the mark is sin. He is the center of the target. So anything that is not like him is sin. As a matter of fact, the terminology used for sin, the Greek word for sin, hamartia, and that's where we get the theology word for it, homardiology, that is the failure. It is being in error. It's missing the mark, especially and even in the context of that time and place was in use of spear throwing. The Hebrew word originates with archery, and it literally means to miss the center of the target. For our lives and for the, for the purpose of our discussion today, the center of the target is the character of God. And anything that does not conform to the character of God is off the target. You've missed it. We have missed the mark. The first to miss the mark was Adam and Eve. When they made their choice to disobey God and exert their will against God's will, they missed the mark. And in doing so, they damaged the image of God in themselves and in every other person ever to be born on this planet in all of history. I try to make that inclusive. Every single person who's ever been born was born in sin. Genesis 1.27 says, And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So the perfect image, this perfect image that Adam and Eve had, reflected God and his character. They, in those moments in the garden, however long they may have been, hit the mark. They were in perfect union with God. They communed with him, it says. There was no separation. Nothing got in the way of the communion that man had with God or that he had with woman or with his environment. But that sin, that willfulness to exert Adam's will over God's will broke that union. We have God's image in us still, although it is damaged. It would be like looking at a mirror that perhaps is spiderwebbed with cracks. And you can look in the mirror and you can tell that it's you, but there's an awful lot in the way of seeing that image reflected perfectly. Even with an imperfect image that we have in ourselves and in others, we still have to honor that image in ourselves and in others. And so here's just a comment. All that we say, and this is what Greg prayed about perfectly, 
that our words must always dignify and honor others, no matter how they behave or no matter where they come from. We as Christians should honor others and we should be offended when others use language or behave in such a way that they disgrace the image of God and other people. The image of God was not eliminated. It wasn't erased, but it was damaged. Our sin affects the whole person. It affects every person. Romans 3 says it like this. There is none righteous, not even one. Well, we could stop right there because, again, that's a pretty inclusive statement. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. He continues, in, in beginning in verse 10, he continues on and says, There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is like an open grave, and their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their past, and the, the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's pretty inclusive, and it's pretty complete about the nature of sin and its effects on all of mankind. So what this means is that we were born that way. We were born in such a way that in in Psalm 58 that says, Even from birth the wicked go astray. From the womb they're wayward and speak lies. While Lady Gaga has a really great song, this is what God means. He says, you are born that way. You are born in sin with the propensity to sin all your life. But being born this way, as while it is natural for us, It is the basic instinct, inclination for us, and we do not have to be taught to sin. Again, we've said it before, but that little baby on the back row back there, no one would teach that baby how to say no to mama and daddy. As cute as they may be, they will learn that on their own because it's inside of them. Because it is natural to us, because it is our proclivity, it does not mean, though, that our sin is excusable. We are still accountable for it. In Romans 14, 12, says each of us will give an account of himself to God. Norm Geisler in his commentary writes that we have a fallen nature does not mean that we are, he says, having a fallen nature does not mean that we are all as sinful as we could be. Rather, it means we're not as good as we should be. The Genesis account of the garden demonstrates the way that sin impacts relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, and our world. When we look at that passage, Genesis 3, 7, why don't you flip over there, please? Genesis 3, verses 7 through 13. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were unclothed. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God said to them, where are you? Like he needed to ask the question, right? And, and they said, we heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was unclothed and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were unclothed? How do you know? What's the difference? How did you learn about that? And then, But he knows, have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman. First thing he says out of his mouth, the woman. The woman, and then not only that, he's really not talking about the woman. He's talking about God. He goes, the woman you gave me. Uh-huh. The, the, the problem we're in right now, Lord, the fact that I'm wearing leaves, 
instead of just in all my glory, the fact that that's happened right now, it's your fault, Lord. It is your fault because you put that woman here. He says, the woman you gave to me, she gave from the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, is this true? And she goes, the snake. Uh-uh. No, it's the snake. In essence, they're both blaming it on God. He says, the woman you created and made, it's her fault. She says, the snake you created and made, it's his fault. But no one in this scene says it's my fault. You notice that? And so immediately what we have here is we have shame has entered the world. Verse 7. They knew that they were naked and they made clothing for themselves. Immediately, they're hiding from others in verse 8. They're hiding from God. In verse 10, there is fear enters the world for the first time. I heard the voice of you and I was afraid. And also self-preservation, blame shifting, finger pointing took place. You see also in this passage, especially in verse 10, and I hid myself. You notice that we can hide ourselves all by ourselves, or we can hide ourselves in a giant room like this, or we can hide ourselves in our living rooms with one other person, behind a remote, behind a book, behind a wall of silence. We became experts at hiding ourselves. And just like Geraldine, my sin is not my fault. The devil made me do it. Well, some of you are thinking, well, I've never murdered. I never cheat on my spouse. Um, I, I, I couldn't even tell you where to find porn. Um, I don't cheat others. I've never drive over the speed limit, and I don't park in handicapped spots. And thinking all that and coming to that conclusion that somehow this doesn't apply to you, this entire topic still doesn't apply to you, even though Scripture says it does, we are still, and I'm going to say this too, as suburban, affluent people, we still have a hard time imagining ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. But but when we are in the Scripture, and we understand that our very essence is sin, and when we really begin to grasp that, when we really begin to understand that, we understand that we are deeply in need of a Savior. So consider this. Here's some of the stuff that the church kind of just winks at. Do you worry? You sinned because you're not trusting God with your circumstances. Do you chase money, having more of it? Matter of fact, you can also chase saving your money, and you've just made an idol. If you are trying to snatch every nickel you can and save it, or if you're trying to spend every nickel that comes in your pocket, the chances that you've done so are that you've made an idol of money. Your job, your title, all those things can be idols. Whatever gives you worth, whatever gives you value, whatever gives you comfort is an idol. So do you see? Whatever gives you comfort is an idol. So let's just take the thing which you can go, how can, how can saving money be an idol? Well, if you save money and your bank accounts are really rich, what are you depending on? Why do you want money to be in the bank? You just, you might need it. You, you might need it. And then you're going to say, hey, 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 it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Yeah, but you know in your heart of hearts whether you're storing up money because it's in the Bible or because you don't think they've got to take care of you. You know that. Even the most innocent, even really good stuff can still be sin 
on our list of church-affirming kind of sin, gluttony, apathy, people-pleasing, gossip, you're a sinner and guilty. The passivity of men is sin. The desire of women to control is sin. Body image, which is such a big deal these days. I guess it always has been, but it is such a big deal these days. Comparing our bodies to others creates a discontentment with the way that God created us. And feeling like I need to look like someone who's selling me something as opposed to the way that God made me and that I'm trying to just take care of it are two different things. And again, you know in your heart when you cross that line of making your health and your looks an idol, you know. It's obvious to some others as we watch you. And then for those who, of us who don't do that, it's obvious as well, isn't it? All of this is just to confirm what we already know, that we are sinners and we need a Savior. The net has been spread, the trap has sprung, and all of mankind has been captured. How does sin impact our lives? David White, um, one of the directors over at Harvest International Ministries here in Glenside, he writes that sin brings desolation. It promises excitement and pleasure but delivers discontent, an insatiable craving, which brings to ruin God's blessings, family, friendships, vocation, and health. What seems like a purely personal sin is always relational destruction. Our sin drives us into hiding, and we begin to wear masks. Going back to Psalm 32, in Psalm 32, he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. You ever felt that way about the sin in your life? Because we keep our sin hidden, our guilt surfaces in other ways and impacts our relationships with others. We're irritable and impatient. We become withdrawn and sullen. Sometimes we rage, even scaring ourselves Even if you manage to hide your behavior for decades, there is always fallout from sin. Sin affects our relationships with both God and others. He goes on. This is still David White describing sin. I just thought it was so good. I wanted to read it to you. The power of shame from our sin is the the hiddenness of our behavior or our desires. When we keep things hidden in the dark, shame grows and overwhelms us. We were created by God for intimacy, to be known by others. But in our shame, we are too scared to let others see who we really are, to know the worst things about us. As a result, we live with this nagging sense that if others truly knew me, they would reject me. We become committed to hiding behind a mask and living a lie. We begin to project an illusion for others to see, but this only intensifies the problem. As our hypocrisy increases, so does our shame. And as our shame deepens, we become more committed to the facade. And we enter a relational cycle as destructive and as ensnaring as our struggle with our sin. And our sin always results in estrangement from others. See it in Genesis, didn't we? Immediately. They're poking fingers at each other. Immediately. They're hiding from God. Our sin separates us from others. And as we are wrestling with that sin, it drives us to behaviors and things that we can't explain ourselves. 
We say, I don't know why I can't get out of bed in the morning. I don't know why I'm depressed. And more often than not, it's because there's something deeply embedded, something deeply undisturbed in our lives that we don't want to deal with and that we don't want others to know about. And it festers. And Psalms 32 comes true. It eats away at my bones. There are some of us in this room here today, two types of people. Some of us are really afraid about what I just read to you because it describes you really well. And you don't know what to do about it. You don't, want to, you don't know how to wash away the dirty feelings and the shame and the condemnation and the guilt and the burden. You can't say you know the benefit and the joy of Jesus' death for your sins. You see, that sin that we've talked about this entire time, that sin that got embedded into the very soul of mankind that wrecked the image of God, it didn't remove it, but it, it wrecked it. That sin demands a payment. It cannot go unchecked. While we might ignore it, and while we might try and just work around it, God cannot do a workaround for sin. It has to be dealt with. Sin demands a payment. It is an offense to God. It means we've missed the mark. And that payment can only be made through death. So Jesus died a death he didn't have to, so his death could pay for your sins. If sin demands death, Jesus says, I'll die for them so they don't have to. Having your sin problem dealt with at the most basic level means believing that Jesus actually did that. Means believing that Jesus' death counts as your death, means that his payment is your payment so that you're not accountable for that sin any longer. It's been charged to Jesus' account. Today, I just deeply, deeply encourage you. Today, trust him. Believe that that payment was made for you. And that you believe that and will take that payment for yourself. Psalms 32.1 says, What happiness for those whose guilt has been forgiven. What joys when sins are covered over. What relief for those who have confessed their sins and God has cleared their record. Simply believing that Christ died for your sins pays for them. It washes you clean. It puts you in the family of God. It sets you on a path of eternal relationship with God. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I could point you to so many people in this room who says that after I trusted Christ, after he dealt with my sin, after he washed away my guilt and my shame, I slept. I just slept because I hadn't been able to do that before. There are others in this room who know Christ as their Savior, but their sins have still dragged them down. And those sins whisper defeat in their ears and weigh down their hearts. And you sit in rooms like this and you read books and you read your Bible and it tells you that we should be striving for victory over sin in our lives. And you lie in your sin that you still are trying to escape and think, why not me? Why not yet? You are Romans 7. You are, I can't do the right thing. I only do the wrong thing. You need to understand that Romans 8.1 was written to you and written to me. 
and that those who are in Christ are still going to struggle with those sins. Those who are in Christ are not going to be able to walk away and just one day walk up and say, you know what, I used to do that and I don't do that anymore. That might be true in some areas, but you've got another area that's still waiting there. One of the best illustrations of sin I've ever heard was Gordon MacDonald when he was writing about his own sin when he had had an infidelity in the pulpit as, as a pastor, and in his own time of uh, being restored, he talked about his sin as, as a time when they were preparing their lawn for putting down grass seed, and they were trying to rake all the rocks out of it. And he said, so we had tons of small stones, and we were raking them out, but we came to this one stone that I could see that I could see it. It looked like that. I could see it and it had dirt around it. But the longer I raked at it, the longer, the, the more I realized that this was not a stone. It was a boulder in my front yard. And that's the way some of our sin is for some of us. Some of us, after we got saved, we were able to say, wow, I don't have that same desire for that sin anymore. And some of those sins got raked out of your lives relatively easy. But all of us have a boulder, maybe more than one that we're still working through in our lives. Something that is embedded in our lives that we are constantly wrestling with. God has said that Christ is still enough and that the grace that Christ gives still covers even that sin and that we are not condemned and we are not held accountable that we are forgiven for that sin, and that he expects us to continue to seek him and find victory in it and to grow in it. Because sometimes we have sins in our life that we put there over the course of 20 or 30 years. We won't get rid of them in a year or two or five or maybe even 10. But he is still faithful to us. He is still faithful to us. And so this morning, if you are one of those believers who feel alone in your sin, you don't have to. This week, my brother Mark, we, he had a movie he wanted us to watch. It was a dramatization of the prodigal son. And one of the lines that stood out to me the most was this. They said that God is not waiting for you to stop your sin. He's waiting on you to invite him in to join you right where you are. And to help you understand how you got into that place. God wants to be with us in our sin in our anger, in our gossip, in our eating disorder, in our sexual identity issues, in our sickness, in our addiction, in our relapses, in our dark places, he wants to be there with us and walk through those things with us. Invite him in, Christian. Invite him in. And ask him to forgive you today and start over. And you might have to do that at 12 and at 1. And at 101, and at 110, but his love never fails. His mercies are forever. He's not like us. He is faithful day in and day out. And he's waiting for people who will come back to him day in and day out and deal with that sin. Let's pray. Father, my sin overwhelms me routinely. And the descriptions that I read, I could have written myself. The withdrawing, the irritability, the anger, all of those things have been my experience as I've tried to deal with my own sin. 
I feel alone at times, Father, weekly, daily. I feel hopeless daily with my sin. I don't believe that I speak only for my sin. I believe that I speak for many people in this room today who long to find themselves free of sin and yet still find their existence to be a Romans 7. Teach us to live in Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Teach us to live in Corinthians 5.17 that we are a new creation. Teach us to live in the truth of your word as opposed to the temptation of the devil. Let our victory be found not so much in our behavior, but in our faith, in your word, in what it says about our lives. And in your name I pray, amen.